0: And if you would take out your copies of God's word and turn with me to Ephesians chapter three. If you're following along in the Pew Bible, that's page one thousand one hundred and sixty one one six zero. Be returning to our journey through Ephesians, and we'll be picking up where we left off. In Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 14. Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 14. Listen carefully, because this is God's word. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's go to this God who's able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think and ask his blessing on our word today. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we thank you for this word that you have given to us. I pray that this passage that you have entrusted to us, that we would hear and be comforted by it. I pray that I would preach this well and that all of us would be willing and ready to hear. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have you ever asked the question about whether or not you have peaked in your life? It's a question we tend to that we not want to ask ourselves. Because we... By answering that question of whether or not we have, oftentimes we don't know the answer to that until we look back and see, oh, there it was in our lives. And I think we all worry about this in one way, shape, or form, whether that would be artists or athletes or academics, whether we've painted the best painting that we ever will have been at the height of our prowess physically or mentally that we'll ever be. And there is the sense that we can think that once we've passed that peak, there's simply nothing further to do in our lives. Once we've passed the, our crowning achievement, all that's left is just to go downhill. Well, that's a very unchristian way of thinking. Because that is not the point of our lives. Because as we'll see here in this passage, there is always another peak to find. And that peak is in understanding the love of God. We tend to think because we have rightly said that God loves you. We've heard this many times. One of my children's Bible television show I watched growing up always closed the show with God made you special and he loves you very much. We've rightly said that. But we have wrongly stopped meditating on that, reflecting on that concept that God loves us. And in fact, what we're going to see here in this passage, that God loves you so much that you have to be strengthened by him to even understand that. And that there is always a new peak of understanding that we can have both in this life And even in the next life, when we're in heaven, the reason why it lasts for all of eternity is because that's how long it takes to comprehend our God. So that's what we're going to look at here today. Now, it's been a number of weeks since we've been in Ephesians. So it's worthwhile to our review and to understand how Paul comes to this point, because this is something of a crescendo in this letter that Paul is writing here to the church at Ephesus. It's divided into two halves. The first three chapters are about the doctrines, the truths that animate the rest of our lives. And then we'll see the application. What is it that those doctrines are supposed to do in our lives in chapters four through six? This is not Christian philosophy that we're supposed to become intellectually bloated with in the first three chapters but that this is a power source that animates the rest of our lives that we'll see put out quite concretely in chapters 4 through 6. But we got to understand 1 through 3. If we don't have 1 through 3, 4 through 6 is just moralism. And if we don't have 4 through 6, then 1 through 3 is just philosophy. We have to have both. And what we saw... And chapter 1 is that God has put incredible blessings in the life of the Christian. That we saw that God the Father chose whom he was going to save. He then sent his Son to make that payment so that salvation could be possible. And then he sends his Holy Spirit to change our hearts and apply that salvation in our lives. The entire trinity necessary to convert the human heart. That's what we saw in chapter 1. And gloriously, we saw he's not just going to stop with converting of people, but that he's going to bring the entire world under submission to him, summing up all things in Christ. That was chapter 1. And then we saw in chapter 2 who we are and why this chapter 1 is so amazing. Because we found out that without God, we were dead in sin we were not drowning in the ocean and God sent us a life raft for us to hang on to. We were dead and decayed at the bottom of the ocean and Christ resurrects us and gives us new life. He found us in a state dead to him, insensitive to the things of God and in lockstep with the rest of the world following after its leader, Satan. He plucks us out of this deadness and makes us one with Christ. And not just one with Christ, but one with each other. And that's what we saw in the first part of chapter 3. Here, and also in the last half of chapter 2, that God is building together his church, a dwelling place for himself, out of people. Both out of Jews and Gentiles, which at that time was the dividing line between peoples of the in-group and the out-group. Now, he's brought the two groups together in Christ. Not behind some ideology, not behind some political rallying point, but in salvation. All equally needy of Christ, he's brought us together, as we saw in chapter 2. And then Paul began in chapter 3. Saying, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, which was going to pick up where we saw in verse 14. But Paul interrupts himself. And he makes sure that he understands that, the God, that the, his hearers, which was a mix of Jew and Gentile, that the Gentiles are given the gospel too. Because it was long thought that it was just for the Jews. But no, God's plan encompasses the whole world. This is what he says Here even though this has cost Paul quite a bit, had to be in prison for the preaching of this gospel. So now we get to verse 14, and Paul's back on track. We're back with what he is praying for the church, and by extension, us even here today. So what we're going to look at is our two points that you'll see on your outline, on the back of your prayer guide. And by the way, I will, um, if you would like to, uh, if you don't have enough space to write notes, if you feel like, oh, I missed something, I have a manuscript that I preach from. I post that on our website. You can find that at knollwoodpresbyterianchurch.com. Click on pastor's blog. and This will be up here on Monday morning. So if you, if you feel like you're antsy in being able to take notes, don't worry. It's going to be there for you on Monday. So, but again, our two points that we're going to have and we're going to look at today is your spiritual life can be stronger. No matter how strong you are, no matter how long you have followed after Jesus, there can always be more. That's a wonderful thing. And then the second point is that you can know God's love deeper. So let's take a look at this first point, is that your spiritual life can be stronger. So Paul begins his prayer before the Father. He says in verse 15, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. But this is referring to, at least according to one of my old seminary professors, uh, Frank Thielman, He talks about that every family in heaven and and on earth is meaning everybody who is on earth and the spiritual beings that are in heaven. Everyone who is here is named by the Father. What that is, if you can name something, that means you have authority over that thing. So here is the Father that we're praying to. So what he's going to ask is a pretty big thing for us. But he's praying to a pretty big God the one who is the father over all things and is in control of all things. So what is Paul praying for, for us? Verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So here is what, is what we're going to see in this prayer, as commentators have pointed out, is that this is a prayer that builds on itself as we go along. A strength from here to do this, to comprehend this, so that this will happen. You see sort of stair-stepping in intensity with this prayer. And he begins that we would be strengthened in our inner being. We don't take a whole lot of account in our inner being most of the time. A lot of New Year's resolutions have more to do with the scale than our spirit. The body's not unimportant. We don't want to say that. But because we see this body, we're more prone to worry about it. And we're less concerned with what's going on on the inside, which is going to inform what happens on the outside, doesn't it? But this is not something that we can strengthen with on our own that we need the power of the Holy Spirit to do this work inside of us and is something we need to be asking for, to be conscious of. But what is he doing with strengthening power in our inner spirit is so that we can understand here in verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, this might sound a little puzzling at first. Is Paul saying that Christ does not dwell in the hearts of his listeners? Is that possible? This is where whenever we are studying the Bible, we always have to take account for the context of the Scriptures. We don't look at one verse and then try to interpret that ignoring the rest of the context. Here, we realize Paul is writing to believers, As we saw in chapter 1, these are believers who are sealed by the Holy Spirit, those who have been raised from, from death to new life. So what he's calling for here is not that Christ would dwell in their hearts, meaning that they need to be saved, meaning that they need to be converted, meaning that they've never heard of Jesus before and have not surrendered their lives to him. What he's saying here is that Christ would dwell in their hearts in a way that transforms them more. The word for dwelling here, as scholars of this language point out, is a very strong word. It means to settle somewhere. Have you ever had a temporary living arrangement, whether you're going for work or something, you're going to be in a hotel for a number of weeks, or if you're, going to, if you're in between movings and you're going to stay at one house for a little while, you tend not to make a whole lot of an impact on the place where you are. You don't bring pictures with you to the hotel room to hang up. You're only going to be there for a couple days. You don't change out the furniture or knock out a wall. You don't do that in the hotel. Trust me, they don't like that. <laughs> but when you have moved into a house, you have staked the rest, of, the rest of 30 years of financial engagement into a dwelling place, you're going to start taking ownership of that. You're going to paint the walls. You're going to hang some pictures. Move some of the furniture around. Buy new ones entirely. Knock out a wall. You're going to make this house your own to reflect who you are and what your tastes are. Christ is the same way. But he doesn't dwell in a house. He dwells in your heart. And when you have surrendered your life over to him and he dwells in your heart, he's going to settle there. And it's going to start making a difference. Sometimes it's quite radical, the difference that he makes. Starts taking out walls, replacing roofs, and changing the layout of your heart totally. Other times it begins with a little bit of a leaky faucet and starts with these. Progress is different for different people. But make no mistake, there's going to be change that's happening here. Now, is this change just Pain for pain's sake? Or is he doing something in your heart that is going to make you happier, make you joyful as he goes around? That's what he's doing. That your heart, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, not effort. Note that. Calls back to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 that we've been saved by grace through faith, through trust not through grand acts of whatever, through grand acts of grace from Christ. And he strengthens us through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love. Paul uses two different metaphors here, one agricultural and the other architectural. Rooted and grounded or foundation that's being laid. All of this is in love from God. Do you think about that? Is that how you conceive of your relationship with God as rooted and grounded in love? Or do you see it as rooted and grounded in, well, I owe him. Or, well, he'll be mad at me if I don't. Or is it rooted and grounded in understanding that the Lord loves you. He delights in you. that He likes you as well as loves you. We need to understand that because that's what the Bible reveals to us. Even the Old Testament. What did we read in our Old Testament reading from Exodus 34? Steadfast love and mercy. He's always been like this. Even in the Old Testament where we, people caricature him as being mean. He's always been loving, because that's his character. So if we understand this, that we are rooted and grounded in love, because Christ is dwelling in our hearts, to do what? Our spiritual life can be stronger. That's what we see in verse 18. So that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend or to grasp with all the saints, what is the breadth and length and height and depth? Now this here, what he's saying, Paul kind of cuts himself off in the midst of this speech. Paul is dictating this letter, and you can feel the emotions as Paul is coming to a conclusion. But because he cuts himself off here, one commentator said that this has unleashed, interpret- has, has unleashed interpretive pandemonium is not what you want to read as someone studying a passage people have tried all sorts of creative ways to understand what these four dimensions are talking about some have said this is the height and length of the cross some have put it and this is the height and length of his love some have said it's the height and length and depth of his love and of his plan of the world i think it's his love because that's what follows in the next verse but it's worth noticing That this is a huge love. There's a multi dimensionality to this. There's something here worth comprehending because it's huge for us. Which again should strike us having seen our portrait in Ephesians 2 being dead in sin, that he would love us in verse 19 that we would comprehend and that we would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge i love that to know something that cannot be known to love and to know something that is beyond our understanding and in fact the word that first word to know the love of Christ is not just understanding with your head but is experiencing the word know is that word is also used of an intimate relationship of a husband and wife to experience the love of Christ that surpasses what we can intellectually comprehend. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. In short, as scholars point out, that we would attain maturity. Maturity. You know, we can tend to look at the love of God and we see it as, this is like, oh, this is a wonderful thing, but I'm satisfied with my one slice of knowledge of this cake of God's love. This is something we can indulge in. This is something that is worth our coming back to over and over and over again. Because no matter how much you think you understand it, there is so much more to know. There is so much more to experience. But why? Why should we be motivated to do this? That's what we get in our second point that we can know God's love deeper. What does this do for your life? perhaps can help to motivate you to dive deeper into this bottomless pool of God's love. Because if you don't understand this, if you don't understand that God loves you, the rest of your Christian life is going to be severely handicapped, if existent altogether. Let's think of how this would make a difference. Let's think about trials and hardships. If you were unaware of how surgery works and you were to be brought into an operating theater, you would think that the surgeon was a madman tormenting this poor person who's on the table and would think he was at the height of all evil doing these things that you don't understand. But if you were then able to be on the other side of the recovery And realize what this surgeon is doing is, in fact, not hateful at all, but is saving this patient's life and is doing whatever it takes to make that possible. All the sacrifices that have been made in order to get to this point and all the sacrifices that will be made in order for the surgeon to continue doing this work shows a tremendous love for this patient. And it's the same way with our God. If you intellectually accept that God is love, but you've never explored that he actually loves you, you're going to look at trials very differently. You're going to look at God as the madman surgeon, not the loving one. When you go through trial, you will tend to think, God's just got it in for me. He's just trying to get me for something that I've done. It's not what we see here. It's not what we see here. It changes how we look at trials and what we are able to endure. That's why we would be able to say with Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, that Paul is able to say, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension that the hardships that the Lord brings into our life are for our ultimate good and is willing to put us through these fires so that we might be further refined. That's what understanding the love of God does for you. It changes how you view hardship. It also changes how you view your sin. Do you have something that you are struggling with, whatever that is? can fill in the blank with your besetting sin. Have you tried thinking about how much God loves you when you are tempted towards that sin? How much he has sacrificed for you? Not in a sense of, well, you know, he's done all this, I guess I should do more for him. It's how could I do something against someone who's loved me so much? Whether you had a a good mother like I was blessed with, or even if you had a bad mother, we have this connection to that person, to where such we would not do to our moms what we would do to our friends or our enemies. There's something sacred about that connection because we love them. That's where that's founded from. And it's the same thing with God. God loves you more than your mother does, if you can believe that. So how is it that we can do something against somebody who loves us? Think about that when, we, when you are prone, when you're tempted to sin. Or when we can think about how we approach the things that we should do, not just the things that we should avoid. This book that sometimes we struggle to find the motivation to read is written from somebody who loves you to you. This is not someone who's trying to be a cosmic killjoy and trying to take away the things you enjoy in your life, but is trying to introduce you to a superior joy that's found in Him and in His love. There is something more to find here. No matter how many times you've gone over these pages, there's more for you, no matter what you've understood. So after all this, Paul closes with this statement of praise. A fancy word for this. You get one fancy word per sermon. This doxology. comes from a word of dox. Doxology is glory. To glorify God. To sing His praise. This is what Paul does. This is now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. According to the power that's at work within us. Now... You might, as one solo type once said, I don't know, I can imagine quite a bit that the Lord could give me. It's far more than you can ask or think. If you think, it's like, okay, well, if I could have anything from God, it'd be a billion dollars, a house on a hill, and all these things we could name, all these physical things that we could have. All that stuff is going to go away. You're wishing for stuff that's going to be somebody's landfill at some point. These grand buildings that we put up, they're going to get knocked down in like 30 years. All the stuff that you have, this is going to be something that your kids and grandkids are going to groan that they have to go through one day. Would you ask that all the wrong things that you have ever done in your life would not count against you in eternity? Would you think to ask that to make that possible, that God the Father would sacrifice his own son for you in the most horrific and shameful way that could possibly have been thought of in the ancient times? Would you ask for that? Would you ask for eternal life in heaven and in bliss? Would you even dare? That's what he's done has done far more than all that we could ask or even imagine. According to the power that's at work within us. The whole, you know, Also asking, and would you also, on top of all of those things, indwell my heart and change me into someone that you find pleasing. This is what he gives to you. And that's why we can say with Paul to him, be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. That's the only person worth praising for all of eternity. And that's what Paul gives to us. So, this closes out the doctrine portion. Of Ephesians. And from here, he's going to go and talk about how this life has changed. But what does this passage mean for our life now? Why is this that you have just spent the last 29 minutes listening to is going to change how you do Monday? Well, we can think through a few things. Since this is about love, if you are alone, However, that works, whether you have had a spouse that has passed, whether you've not been married yet at all, you are still deeply loved. The love of a husband and a wife is a beautiful thing to wish for. That's something that's a good thing. But it is not a replacing of God's love. And if you think that it is, that's putting an awful lot of pressure on your spouse to give them something, to give you something they couldn't possibly give you. Even in your marriage, you are still going to need the, found, the rooting and grounding that is God's love for you. So learn to lean into that now. If you're single or have never been married, start learning how to do that. If you are, have been married and are now alone, lean on God's love for you. If you are a child prone to fear god's love means you're never by yourself you're never in the dark there is someone who understands you who understands you better than anybody that's what god's love means for you you are never alone if you feel like the best days are behind you they're not Just means with age and wisdom, you can more deeply comprehend the love of God than you ever have before. And that's more precious than any career or physical ability that you had or have. This will tell you that no matter what is happening in your life, someone loves you deeply and forever. And if all this sounds somewhat mysterious and vague, beyond just the failings of your preacher. Part of it is, this is an invitation for you to explore this on your own. Part of it, since this love of God surpasses knowledge, it surpasses speech as well. It's what makes a sermon on this so difficult. But what I hope it does is to encourage you to begin, if you haven't already, your own journey in understanding this. Dive into this word. Spend time with God in prayer. Seek after a greater understanding of the love of God than you currently have. And then you will understand why Paul has reached such a crescendo of praise here. You will understand why this is the perfect closer to this section of Ephesians And how it motivates the rest of your life but that's something you've got to seek but it's something that you will find just when you think you've reached the bottom of it out comes more it's one of my favorite things when i'm at someone's house there's Food, and I think it's just about the end. I'm going to try to be nice and not take as much of the last little bit that's in the bowl. And someone comes out and places another big bowl of that same food. You just get the big ladle out and just start digging in it, man. That's the thing for God's love. There's more than you think. So keep digging. Indulge in this. Pursue after real joy. Don't get distracted by these other things that promise nothing. There is an end to football statistics. There is an end to the joy and happiness your children can bring you. There is an end to your money. There is an end to your accomplishments but there is no end to the love of god that you can understand so get after it there's more to see so if you are looking for something to pursue here in this new year pursue an understanding of god's love and i promise you you won't be disappointed You won't come to the end. You will never peak. There will always be more. But of course, you can't begin, even start, this journey unless you have surrendered your life to Christ, turned from your sins, and put your trust in him. He loves you. No matter what you've done, you can come to him and find forgiveness and transformation in your life. If you're unsure whether or not that's where you stand with Jesus today, please come and see me. There's no end to God's love, but there is an end one day to your life. And Jesus warns that when we die, after this, there is the judgment. Once we die, there's no more chances. But he has given you every chance in the world even today, and this is another opportunity. So if you've not come, today is the day of your salvation. Don't put it off any longer. Heaven and salvation awaits you, and a deeper understanding of God's love for you is just around the corner. So come and start that journey today. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we thank you for bringing us here to this understanding of your love. I pray that this year that we would not be satisfied with what we know already, but that we would constantly be driving forward into what it is that you would have for us. And if there is anybody here that has not come to faith in Christ, I pray that you would grip their heart so that they would come to you today. And for those of us that have put our trust in Christ, oh, I pray that this love that's filled our own hearts would overflow and go out to others, that our love would be boundless for other people as you continually fill us. Oh, we ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen.